proud of HBC. I'm proud of what it did. I'm proud of what it's doing. This is episode 297 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Every once in a while, Christopher gets the opportunity to interview established voices in the industry for our podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from people who've been working for many years to bring better connectivity to businesses and residents in America's communities. This week, Christopher talks with an old friend, Gary Evans, who has served as president and CEO of Hiawatha Broadband Communications. In this interview, Gary shares the history of the company that serves southeastern Minnesota. He describes some of the early challenges and triumphs, along with the partnerships and collaborations he and HBC have established over the years. We wanted to bring Gary on the show because we feel it's important to document the history of the Internet and the role small companies played in bringing Internet access to America. In many places, it was the relatively small, unknown companies that were the first to deliver Internet access, not the large national ISPs we all know today. Because Gary has so many interesting stories to share, and we didn't want to exclude anything that could be helpful for our listeners, this interview runs longer than most Community Broadband Bits episodes, about an hour. Now here's Christopher with Gary Evans. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and I'm on the road today with Gary Evans, the now-retired founder of Hiawatha Broadband Communications. Welcome to the show, Gary. Chris, it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, We were joking just before we started recording that you said you are the unhappily retired. I defy anyone who listens to this to find a moment in which you appear to be unhappy. (laughs) Well, the, the fact of the matter is I think that I'm working on my fifth retirement. So that sort of tells you that uh, it's been an uneasy time for me. Sure. Yes. And I, I believe that you've been active in many things, as we'll cover. This will be a, a longer interview than our than our most, which we aim for 20 to 30 minutes, because every now and then when I have a chance to interview someone like you who's been so active for so long and has so many different insights, I want to take a little extra time. Um, so I think maybe we'll start with uh, what is HBC, Hiawatha Broadband Communications? Uh, HBC is um, a, a community-centric organization that seeks uh, to create community betterment through connectivity. That, that was the second vision for HBC, if you will. Let me just take you back to 1992. And it's, it's sort of interesting to be sitting here with you because I was visiting with Bob Kierlin, who really gets the credit for the initial vision. Bob, as you probably know, was the founder of Fastenal Company, was also a state senator for a time in Minnesota. And um, a long time ago, there were a group of us who went to work very early in the morning. And if we talked, we talked very early in the morning. And Bob, Bob sometimes talked cryptically, and I got a call at 5 o'clock one morning saying, um, Gary, you're going to get a call this afternoon from a friend of yours, and I hope you're going to say yes. And that ended the call. Now, interestingly enough, two years prior, I'd gotten a similar call, and he said, uh, Gary, you're going to get a letter from the bishop this afternoon, And I hope you'll say yes. That was a bit disconcerting because being Lutheran, I wasn't certain what the bishop would want with (laughs) me. I I sought the advice of a Catholic friend who told me he thought in my case maybe they'd consider human sacrifices. But (laughs) in any event, um, I had been part of a meeting that had asked Bob and his Fastenal partners to consider the purchase of the College of St. Teresa campus in Winona, a campus that was going to be vacant at the end of the 1988-89 school year. And uh, less than 10 hours after the meeting ended, I got a call from Bob saying they'd purchased the campus. And the bishop wrote to ask if I would be part of a task force to plan how that campus would be used. There doesn't perhaps seem to be a great connection between the two, except 
that as Bob and his partners moved to put the campus again to productive use, state-of-the-art telecom became part of the vision for that campus. And although Bob and I argued and still do about whether it fulfilled its mission because it was entirely Apple-based and I thought it should be mixed platform, um, when the campus opened in um, 1990, it was in fact a wonderful, wonderful mecca of communication. It had everything including a TV studio if you a commercial TV studio so these are the these are the seeds of, of HBC and uh, for people who didn't grow up in the area around here it's uh, Winona is in the southeastern part of Minnesota and Fastenal is a very successful company that uh, is based out of there it is and the Fastenal partners have been uncommonly generous um, and um, so they sought to create an education park on the campus. Let's go back then to the call that said I'd get a, a, a visit or a call from a friend. It was my backyard neighbor saying that Bob wanted us to take a look at this new stuff called fiber optics to see if there was any advantage in it for education. Uh, we met... Um, in Bob's home in February of um, 1993 um, and gave Bob what he had requested, which was a three-page feasibility study, including a budget. And uh, we said that fiber optic connectivity for Winona's educational institutions could be a real benefit, but would also be costly. We got up, dusted off our hands. My partner, Bud Beckler, who's a rather well-known uh, personality in southeastern Minnesota as the result of his work in public relations, uh, and I got ready to leave Bob's house when he tapped me on the shoulder, handed me a check for $600,000, and said, you guys must think you know what you're doing. Why don't you get at it? <laughs> um, that was a little heart-stopping, to be honest with you, Chris, because I don't know if we really did know how to do it or what we were doing. But ultimately, we connected all of the city's educational institutions with fiber. We also included City Hall, purely for political purposes, I might add. We had met with the mayor and city manager who um, suggested their approval would be routine if we would make sure they were connected, and we readily agreed to that. We also included our hospital uh, because it was both a provider of and a consumer of education, and we thought that would be beneficial. Luminat, that venture began in 1995. And uh, along the way, we created a number of user groups. Interestingly enough, Dan Pecorina, the current CEO of HBC, um, was the um, information systems manager at Winona State, where I also worked. And Dan wound up chairing the data internet group. And uh, after the first meeting of that group, he came to me and said, Gary, can I get Sampson Auditorium for our next meeting? And, and that totally puzzled me because Sampson was a 900-seat auditorium, and they filled the darn thing. <laughs> That's how, if we go back... Um, to 1992, that's how voracious the appetite for Internet connectivity. You know, most of us were making toll calls to AOL in Chicago for our connectivity. And, and so Luminet diverted from its not-for-profit um, status to become also one of the nation's first small-town Internet services. And uh, 
I joke all the time about that being the best and worst decision we ever made, all wrapped up into one decision. Um, it was clearly the best because of all it did for Winona, and it was clearly the worst because our human resource never quite equaled what was necessary to deliver superb service. So you were, you were always struggling to, to get to where you wanted to be. We absolutely were. Um, there was a time um, in um, about 1996 when 80% of, the, of Winona's 27,000 residents had email addresses if you can believe it, as the result of what was then known as Luminet. In 1997, then, trying to catch us up here and not be so verbose, we were at a Luminet board meeting. Both Bud Beckler and I were on the board along with Bob Kierlin, uh, Bob Hahn, who was a local CPA, and Kent Jernander, a local attorney, who had been instrumental in helping us get Luminat going, when Bob said, is this the time? And it was one of those questions delivered in such a way that it sort of caught you up short and made you think a minute. And I remember saying, the time for what? And he said, well, you guys, in the last sentence of that feasibility study you gave me said that, it wouldn't be a complete project until we enabled connectivity to all Winonans who wanted it. So that was something that was sticking around in his head, probably more so than your head. It absolutely was. I mean, we were scrambling to try and keep up with the demand on the Internet side. And I, and I remember making the same comment to him I had made earlier when I said, Jeepers, Bob, that's going to be expensive. And he said, well, you know, didn't it work out okay last time? I sort of handled the money. You guys handled the other stuff, and we got it done. And the Hiawatha Education Foundation, which was comprised of Bob and his four partners, gave us the first $8 million to get the build started. We activated the first node in Winona in 2000. We finished the 57th node in 2001. And that's when all Winonans did have access to high-speed communications. Although high-speed communication then was far different than than it is today and that first network we built was in was a hybrid fiber coax network that was sort of the state of the art back then right and, and when you say nodes those are in, in the way that i think a number of people are more familiar now you had fiber to each node and then you had uh, the cable system out to the residents coax to the residences right um those original nodes were built um, to serve 500 customers. Which was a pretty small split at the time. It was a very small split at the time. It, it was funny because um, we made a major marketing mistake. Um, we decided to um, publicize our progress with a map in the Winona newspapers that showed node-by-node node where connectivity was. Uh, and that simply enabled Charter, our competition, mm -hmm. to move in and offer multi-year deals uh, to people in exchange for contracts. Now, if we just pause for a second here, this is a time of, of incredible... Uh, predatory pricing. And I, I happened to have followed some of the HFC networks in, in retrospect. I wasn't paying attention at the time, but I've looked back in history. And in the very early 2000s is when Charter was, in some places, offering people effectively free internet service, it seems like, and giving them like $200 cash if they sign up for multi-year contracts. So it's this was bad, worse than it is today even, where we see that practice. You know, as, as we talk about HBC, where which at least I consider to be an incredible success story, we made a heck of a lot of mistakes. And, and the first one is exactly what you talk about. 
we opened up with prices that were lower than charters. And soon we were in a downward cycle that we knew we couldn't survive in. And, and so we had to stop. Our second community, St. Charles, Minnesota, is a very interesting story for me as well. Um, in 2005, um, the HBC story was spreading pretty, pretty incredibly across Minnesota. Um, in our pre-planning stages, and I, I need to include Bud Beckler here because he was very influential in helping us with the planning. And what we did, Chris, was we sat down and talked about every negative we could think of that was connected to modern-day telecom. Service was terrible. Um, if you wanted to sign up, you got a day window and you had to take a whole day off from work. I'm glad we don't have to do that anymore. No. Now we have four-hour windows. <laughs> yeah, well, but in Winona, you have time-specific. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if the installer is going to be late, the customer gets a call. From you. Yes. 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 I, I mean, it's, you know, so we looked at everything, and uh, we decided that the hallmark of our business had to be customer first. You know, in retrospect, that's kind of interesting because Fastenal's mission is growth through customer service. So the, the companies had, had the same base, if, if you will. And, and we tried very hard. Um, we also had a rule that said if something breaks today, it's fixed today. If you want it fixed today, it will be. And I remember my son not being too happy one day when um, one of our repairmen wound up at his house at 1030 at night wanting to fix his TV service, which was out. But there, I think that HBC did in those early days try very hard to be a very different telecom company, if you will, a very customer-centric one. Did you look at the record of others? I mean, there was a, a history of, uh, of overbuilding, as the industry calls it, or just competitive companies that, that tried to do this, believing that there was a market opening because of the bad service and all the problems that you describe. Most of them went out of business, it seems like, or, or you know, consolidated into RCN or something like that. Yeah, we didn't. And it's probably a good thing we didn't. We might not have started <laughs> if we had. Um, and um, so we learned um, as we went to, you know, I can't tell you that we were a perfect story from the get-go. Uh, we had to make modifications along the way in everything that we did. But I, I think that our penetration statistics, which frequently ranged up in the 80s, would demonstrate that we were certainly better than the competition. And I think that the customer feedback that we got and solicited, by the way, would demonstrate that people thought we were a good deal better than the competition. But Saint, back to St. Charles for just a minute. For the listeners who don't understand Minnesota, Winona is about where Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota come together. And 20 miles west of Winona is St. Charles, and 20 miles west of St. Charles is Rochester, home of the Mayo Clinic. I mention that because in 2005, um, Rochester and Mayo were beginning to flex their muscles around a new initiative to create a super clinic in Rochester, if you will. And St. Charles, who had a bunch of visionary residents on their Economic Development Association, wanted to be the number one bedroom community to Rochester. And, and the whole EDA came to visit me at HBC one day and said, we want you to build a network in St. Charles. Will you think about it? We'll give you whatever you want. Need money? You've got it. Need rights of way? You've got it. Whatever you want, just let us know. 
after meeting with them on several occasions, we realized how serious they were about their vision. And we said yes, said we'd do it ourselves with our own money, which we did. We built St. Charles richer in fiber than Winona was. When you when you say richer in fiber, do you mean it was all fiber? The, the, no. It was still hybrid fiber coax, but the nodes were built with 200 residents okay. or customers in mind. When we started the network, there were two tiny housing developments underway in St. Charles. Um, a year and a half da- after the network was activated, St. Charles had doubled in size and was completely ringed by new housing developments. So I think the people there who were on the EDA at the time would tell you that they achieved their goal. And um, many of their new residents are people with high incomes who want small-town life. Um, Rochester has now ballooned to more than 100,000 residents because of mail, and there are a number among them who want smaller uh, communities. I think a lot of those people are a little crazy because I want to live as close to John Hardy's as I possibly can. Possibly the best uh, pulled pork and otherwise barbecue in the upper Midwest. Oh, my. Now now I'm probably going to have to go back through Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. In any event... Um, Uh, St. Charles was another wonderful success story for HBC. The third community that we built was Wabasha. Wabasha is a Mississippi River community like Winona, but 30 miles north. And Walter Matthau lived there for a while in the movie Grumpy Old Men. That is correct. And by the way, Grumpy Old Men um, was written by a Winona State student, (laughs) was written about a Winona State professor who was played by Anne Margaret in the right, movie. And right. and it's a pretty true-to-life story for those of us who know it and lived it, kind of. <laughs> That's great. But Wabasha was our first all-fiber community, and, and Wabasha represented another first. We decided after St. Charles that when we activated a community or when we got ready to build one, we would hold a community dinner, and we would invite everybody in town to come out and enjoy dinner on us. We would make um, a brief presentation on what we were doing, and we would allow people to sign up for service, promising them that they would be installed in the order that they signed up. We also used every restauranteur in town to provide food for the community dinner so they wouldn't miss out on a payday as the result of us inviting everybody out. We, we did the dinner at the Wabashaw High School, and we signed up more than 80% of the residents in town on that original night. That's incredible. Yeah. And so community dinners became part of the strategy (laughs) from there forward. Although in the case of Red Wing, when we built that, we had to do neighborhood barbecues because there wasn't a place large enough to hold the whole town. HBC is now 21 communities. Um, We're sitting today in one of the newer ones, Cannon Falls, Minnesota. Uh, Cannon came to us while I was still at HBC. We began talking with the community at that time. Um, We provided some help to their Economic Development Association early on, and now HBC is building the town. We pretty much blanket um, southeast Minnesota, and uh, Penetration rates have remained very, very high, above 70% in the aggregate. It was, it was for me a marvelous, marvelous ride, both educationally and from a results point of view. Um, but, but the biggest thing was, I will say this, um, probably causing some of my um, former fellow board members to cringe, 
profit was never as important to me as customer satisfaction. And, and we tried to make that the hallmark of, of what we did. We, we were not as profitable as we might have been. For instance, uh, one of the things we did was in the rush to create um, community television stations, Winona didn't get a station. Lacrosse and Rochester had stations. When you say the rush to create the community TV stations, this was not HBC. This was the more the community media movement, the, Absolutely. the public access yeah. channel. Back in the, I'm guessing, 50s, well, probably 60s mm-hmm. and right. 70s. When cable television gets introduced, people start thinking, we need to make sure it's not all commercialized. But Winona kind of misses out on that. Yes, yes. And, and so part of HBC's um, program was local television programming. Um, We did daily newscasts. Um, We produced lots of local shows. We did a lot of local sports. HBC still does. And and you didn't charge for this. This was just content that you were funding. We created almost all of it at our expense, and we did sell advertising, not enough, but people got the offering for free as part of our service. And it's worth noting, people in Winona have a certain fondness for Winona State basketball. Very much so. And so that helped. I think that, you know, not everywhere may not have that exact same advantage. Well, that's true, because during the time that HBC was really moving along and gearing up, Winona won two Division II NCAA national championships um, and sandwiched between the two was a runner-up finish. So uh, the fact that HBC did all the Winona State games was indeed a big deal to Winona. And let's talk about one other sports thing, which uh, if I'm remembering correctly, this was something that that I believe I learned 10 years ago from either you or, or Dan Pecorina was that um, widows and baseball had a, had a certain uh, impact on your bottom line. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I will never forget it. We discovered that the twins were a can't get along without commodity for elderly spinsters, if you will, or widows. And um, if if we go back, Chris, to this moment, you will remember that there was a period when the twins started their own television network. It didn't last very long, but HBC was the first customer for <laughs> that network. And you didn't know this at the time. No. Right? We, we found out as the result of our purchase of that channel that that the women in Winona were absolutely rabid baseball fans. You know, Winona has a phenomenal baseball history. Um, many of us remember the old Southern Mini League that w- was as popular as AAA baseball, I think, at one point in time. And, and um, Winona was, was a member and... Uh, People still talk about the good old days with with the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Um, something else happened that that I count among the um, real, really big successes. Um, and you know, I've learned in life that vision is perhaps the greatest treasure of all. You know, people always point to money. I I think vision. If vision is good enough, I think money follows. Um, But another thing that we learned is that sometimes accident isn't as important as on purpose. Um, I got a call one day in um, early 2000 from a friend who had worked for me uh, back in the very early 1960s who said to me, I'm sitting here with the CEO of Cerner Corporation in Kansas City, and um, he just got done telling me that there's no place 
that he can find that meets his um, criteria. Uh, he wants to find a community of 50,000 or less with a single hospital system, a predominant clinic, and a broadband network. And he can find all of the first three, but he can't find a broadband network, and I told him Winona had one. Well, that afternoon, uh, Neil Patterson, who just died a couple of months ago, um, and I talked by phone, and uh, he was astonished to find out that, yeah, Winona did have a broadband network, and a week later... Um, a very big airplane filled with Cerner executives flew into Winona, allegedly going to make a 20-minute stop and uh, stayed for nine hours uh, looking at what we had done and were doing and at the end of nine hours produced a partnership saying that they would like to make Winona their their testbed community for their ed technological advances. And um, so Winona Health benefited from millions of dollars of investment by Cerner. You know, we had the first electronic, one of the, well, one of the first, perhaps the first working electronic medical records in the country. We had one of the first physician order entry on the pharmaceutical front. I mean, it's amazing. And all that all came, all that investment, because of the broadband network that was in place in Winona. So, um, you know, as, as I look back on the time, that 5, 5 a.m. telephone call from Bob Kierlin, um ultimately set a path for me that was um, incredible, unplanned, but incredible. Uh, as we planned to move into HBC, I don't know, Chris, if you ever met a fellow by the name of Tom Bystricky. I don't recall. Tom is a Twin Cities resident, wonderful, wonderful man. I don't know them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I know you know most of them, but perhaps not all. In any event, Tom was the number two man in U.S. West at the time that uh, HBC was gearing up. And U.S. West would go on to become what is now CenturyLink, so a very large uh, incumbent telephone company. Yes, yes. And, and interestingly enough, we had partnerships with both. <laughs> I met a fella by the name of Will Kitchen, who was sort of a popular man about town, if you will. I think he might now live abroad. Will had just been named um, the head of Communities of Interest Networks for U.S. West. And I remember encountering him at the state capitol and asking him what he was doing. And he said, you know, I need to figure that out. And I said, well, what are communities of interest? He said, well, I need to figure that out, too. And so I said, well, could we sit down and figure it out together? Sure. And, and we did that. And so, as you know, um, moving through a large corporation is a big challenge. And we didn't make very much progress. And finally, I said to Will, isn't there Anybody we can talk to in your company who might be interested? And, um, you know, I'm a storyteller, and this is a favorite one of mine. But um, Will said, well, you know, there's the number two guy in U.S. West is a guy by the name of Tom Bystricky. I never met him, but I'm guessing that he could make a decision. So I wrote Tom this well, frankly, it was a nasty letter okay. about uh, <laughs> not making decisions and so on. And at the time, I was a vice president at Winona State, and three days later, I'm in my office, 
and the student receptionist <laughs> says, there's a Mr. Bystricky on the line who wants to talk to you. Not a common name. No confusion. No. <laughs> who that is. So now I'm cringing a bit. And um, so I picked up the phone and he said, so what in the world is so important about Winona? My response was, uh, you know, Mr. Bystricky, if you'd get out of your ivory tower and make a trip down river, we'll even send a plane to get you. What a dumb comment that was he had his own plane and and anyway um we'll send a plane to get you but you need to come down and and know what we're doing because we'd like your help so about a month later that meeting was set and um I got a call from Will Kitchen early in the morning, and you could hear his voice trembling with nervousness. Uh, He said, Gary, um, Bystricky just got on the airplane here for the trip to Winona, and um, he grabbed me by the knee and said, well, kid, this better be worth my time. Right. And he said, so, boy, it better be worth his time. So um, Bob Dylan's airplane— which was on lease to U.S. West, flew into Winona with a group of U.S. West executives, um, and they spent a number of hours kicking around our equipment on the College of St. Teresa campus, and um, then they left. And, and Tom was very cordial but noncommittal, The next call I got was about 20 minutes later from Will Kitchen. They were back in the cities, and Will was saying, wow, he got on the airplane and said, you know, kid, I'm really grateful to you. If it weren't for you, we'd have missed a great opportunity. So um, U.S. West became our partner and put – um, money into the project, the Luminet project in Winona, and and was our partner. And when we decided to go to HBC, Tom was a leading influence. He by then had become a good friend. Uh, he made regular trips to Winona. I need to back up because he said, I suppose you think I'm calling you because of your letter. That was the original call. And I said, well, I can't think of why else you'd call me. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you know, I know something you don't know. And I said, yeah, I suppose you know a lot of things I don't know. And he said, my wife is a graduate of Winona State, and if she knew I got a letter from a vice president that I didn't respond to, I'd be in trouble. Sure. And so Tom was really the genesis for the thinking about Hiawatha Broadband because he said, you know, Gary, as I look ahead, we're not going to be investing much money in tier two and tier three markets. Right. This is a this is a time when people are mostly on dial up. This is a time in which you, what you're doing is terrific for them because you're making people excited about having much more time on the phone. I mean, and when I lived in Rochester in high school, I was fortunate enough. My dad, we'd moved to Rochester so he could work at IBM. Computers were a very big part of my life in, in junior high and high school. So we had a second telephone line we could be on much more often and um, when other people were fighting over it with their families. So that made a lot of money for U.S. West. Yes. Tom said, you know, we probably aren't going to be making those investments. If I were you guys, I'd think of of moving ahead as you're planning with, with a build. And your vision probably shouldn't stop with Winona. So he's, and this is a time also when DSL is on the is on the horizon, or else is being deployed in some places, and he's basically telling you to to build a network that's gonna because they're not gonna build theirs, so it, the market is yours. Yep, that's right. Actually, and I I think I can say this now since it's a long time later. Tom was scheduled to be the first CEO of HBC. He. he I remember him saying to me one day as we sat and talked, he said, you know, Gary, I'm just not happy. I'm a builder. 
And now I sit in my office and I don't build anything. And um, I said, well, you know, Tom, you got to get out of that office and come down and join us. And he said, you'd have me? (laughs) <laughs> and I, I said, yes. Well, bottom line, he didn't come for um, reasons of, of personal finance and a non-compete clause. Um, and I became a poor second choice. But, <laughs> well, when, when he, he quit, I remember calling Kent Jernander on my way home from St. Paul to tell him that Tom couldn't be interested because of personal circumstances. And, and, and this, it's kind of funny to think about because this was back in the days of early cell service when you needed a weightlifter to carry your phone, you right. know. <laughs> and so I called him when I was going through Red Wing because there was service there. And as I got to the end of Red Wing, I heard him say, call me when you get to Lake City. Well, I talked to him again in Lake City, and by the time I talked to him in Wabashaw, he was saying I needed to become the CEO of HPC. So that's sort of how all that unfolded. It it's a it's a situation, Chris, of marvel a marvelous series of stories. Yes, there was investment, but mostly there was vision. You know. People call me the vision behind HPC. I wasn't. It was Bob Kierlin. It was Bud Beckler. It was Tom Bystricky. Uh, Sprint was our partner, and a fellow by the name of Rich Kalbrenner, who was a uh, Winona native and uh, an executive in Sprint, was another part of the story. So um, because we were new, because we were early, we made a lot of friends that helped us out. Yeah, I don't think that's unique. And I, you know, I think one of the things that we find is these biz- businesses succeed in that way, ISPs particularly. Um, you know, I'll say a lot of the ISPs that, that I know of, even if they might be hostile to some of their competitors, they're often their engineers are talking or they're, they're talking about there's sort of a brotherhood or a sisterhood. of. There is that. There definitely is that, and and it's a good thing, right? Um, it 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 enables progress. The synergistic approach enables progress that wouldn't otherwise be achieved. I think there was a time when you visited the Federal Communications Commission. I think, and and you said that you were profitable, and people who their job is to understand the U.S. telecommunications market, their jaws dropped. Uh, do you remember that? What was I sure do. There? Well, they, a lot of things happened as a result of that. Uh, I don't remember all of the uh, names, uh, but um, back in the day when the broadband plan was being written, about 2009, I think, maybe, um, we got a call one day asking if we would come out and tell the committee our story. And um, they didn't believe that there was an overbuilder in the country that was profitable. And um, I, I didn't have enough brains to be frightened of the people I was meeting with, so I just told it as I saw it. You didn't. You didn't grow up going to elite colleges and things no, like that. No, I did not. <laughs> You're I just a person who figured things not. out as you went along. And so, you know, I just told them about the business as I saw it, and I told them that there were a number of things that they were doing that were inhibiting progress, and and maybe they should see it differently. Um, I got a call from Blair Levin inviting HBC to become one of their advisors as they went through the broadband plan. And we wrote a lot of white papers for them. I'm disappointed to say that um, I would have liked to see more of the input included in the plan. Um, I didn't think it then was um, friendly to competition. Um, I thought, um, you know, you learn in politics that uh, money talks. 
and big money was being spent to make sure that companies like HBC didn't gain any particular foothold. Um, I think we were very fortunate to start where we started. There wasn't a lot of attention on a market like Winona, and um, if you're building a mini Esca with 68 people in it, nobody looks at that. Well, this is this is something I really wanted to follow up with you on because I think most of the overbuilders were building in Boston. They were building in the Lehigh Valley where I grew up in Absolutely. areas that, that had more density, maybe had higher build costs because there was a sense that you absolutely needed to hit that density to make your business model work. You know, I don't think that was uh, that was true at all. I think what we discovered was that um, you could build an all-fiber network. You could leverage resources in such a way that you could build a community of 68 residents, if you will. You could deliver outstanding, at least in our mind, customer service, and you could be profitable. And, you know, we also discovered that sharing that story with people, with our customers, didn't bring a negative reaction. The fact that you were profitable, I think, was pretty much understood to be the basis for continuing to exist. Right. I don't think I don't think most people are going to be upset that you're profitable. When they go to grocery stores that are profitable, they 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 were renting videos from video stores that were Absolutely. profitable. Yeah. Right. I think the concern was always that that um, with the cable and telephone companies, it's not that that they were profitable, the big ones. It's that. They were excessively so. It's that you had a sense that they weren't happy just to give the money that you offered. They wanted to pick your pocket for the rest of it. That's absolutely true. And in addition, if something went down, they weren't very aggressive about fixing it. Right, right. There wasn't really a contract. It was a one-sided thing. Yeah, it was a one-sided thing. But, you know, along the way, we we, Miniaska is a fun one to talk about because – we had to run fiber from Winona to Wabashaw to serve that community because along the way, one of the things that made us profitable was that we could leverage our head end in Winona to provide service to other communities. And, you know, that was also my biggest fear. If something had happened to that head end, it would have been terrible. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we had a partnership with CenturyLink. And uh, I remember walking into CenturyLink one day and meeting with Dwayne Ring, who is now the uh, chief executive in the Twin Cities, and Bob Brown, who is the Wisconsin president, and asking them if they had ever thought about delivering television content. They seemed interested, but not excessively so. And although we had a good talk, nothing happened. Until two years later, when I got a call from Dwayne saying, Are you serious about providing us with TV signal? Man, what a mess that was. <laughs> Getting through the red tape on that one was crazy. And this was when CenturyLink was small comparatively. Yes, yes. Um, Lacrosse was, was a major hub of theirs, and Dwayne was the chief exec there. But um, we provided them with television signal for two years until they proved that they wanted that to be part of their customer offerings and built their own head end in Missouri. So we lost the business, but you know what? We had gained some real, real friends. CenturyLink pledged to allow us to use their head end if we ever had trouble with with ours. And, and the thing that just absolutely astounded me was that we had um, a phenomenal destructive flood in 2007. You will remember that we had 28 inches of rain in a 40-hour period or something. I remember coming down to HBC one month after that happened because uh, uh, Jeff Daly, someone who is unfortunately not as involved in telecom anymore, he was yep. going through. I ran into him, and that was my first introduction to HBC. But one of the things I remember learning is that St. Charles still had standing water, um, and your fiber was totally underwater, but you were delivering signals just fine. We were. But, you know, the 
on Monday morning, I got home from a golf trip to Ireland on Friday night. It was Saturday that we realized that much of Goodview, the suburb in which I live, was underwater. And on Monday morning at 7 o'clock, I get a call from Bob Brown in Lacrosse, and he said, Gary, every one of our construction companies are at your disposal. If you need our help, just call me. I'll have men and machines in Winona this afternoon. There are wonderful stories about friendship that that exist in spite of competitive um, issues. You know, we had eyes on lacrosse at one point in time, but when we got into the partnership with CenturyLink, those sort of evaporated. You must have you must have looked at Rochester from time to time. I mean, it's right in the the, the center of certainly now. It's certainly in the center. It, it, it's very hard to exist where we exist and not look at Rochester. I can tell you without fear of contradiction that we lusted after Rochester. <laughs> we also knew that it was going to be the biggest thing that we ever did. Um, we grappled with how to, how to deal with the time to build, um, how we dealt with the outflow of money when there was no inflow and we would have um, huge, huge expense lines there. And then there was another factor. In many ways, when our big push started, IBM was on the decline in Rochester. I just see that the building has been sold now. Oh, wow. I, I, was... think, <laughs> I, I think I read that last week. Right, this is uh, Rochester is famous for the AS four hundreds, the uh, those big machines that, boy, when I was there in high school, I had an internship working with a company that was working with them, and the 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 most impressive one was three terabytes of uh, hard oh, drive yeah. space. And it was it was amazing, and you know we had, we had some experiments with Mayo, and we had some with IBM as well, but we also didn't believe that those two industries were underserved. And we also believed that because they weren't underserved, Rochester was going to be a more difficult sell than anything we had previously done. And before I retired, we never got around to it. Mm -hmm. So... The I just I think it's worth revisiting that. I mean, you specifically went after areas that a lot of other people disregarded. Um, you pulled off take rates of eighty percent in these places. Not only that, but eighty percent initially. <laughs> yes, sometimes before ac- action or before connectivity. Right, and and one of the ways you did that was was I think I mean once you've built up a reputation that's nice, but you treated people like they were people, and you opened offices in those communities. You didn't just send crews out from Winona when something broke. No, that's correct. Um, we determined early on that if we were going to exist successfully in St. Charles and Wabasha and Lake City and Red Wing, that we were going to have to have offices there. Yeah, and these are. Close enough proximity that presumably for a large telecommunications company today, like one of the incumbents, they probably have one office serving all of those. That's correct. I mean, you know, Winona has a limited personnel charter office, I believe, but but all of their repair and all of their maintenance comes out of lacrosse. Um, opening offices was another big thing that helped us because that was an economic development advancement that was major in some communities. One of the things that was great to contemplate was the fact that I think when we were working with the FCC in 2009 and 10 that we discovered that every community that we had built was larger than it had been when we started the build. Yeah, I forgot to put that in my notes. That's one of the things you said. Some of them had had five decades of decline. Five and six. And, you know, Minieska, here we go again, 68 people, right? And um, they wound up with 
two new residents who were professors, one in the Dakotas and one in western Minnesota, who were teaching classes online from their home in Minneapolis, which which was great. So HBC enabled a lot of things. It it helped save a lot of lives because of the medical partnership we had with Cerner. It tried to do the right thing. I'm sure we didn't always, but we tried to make it right. I remember once we, we had a customer who we installed and we let their dog out and the dog got away. And, and we had virtually every one of our employees after office hours looking for that dog. Well, the dog came home, and um, the next day our installers took over dog food and other things. And um, it was funny because the gentleman was a physician in La Crosse, and <laughs> My my wife wound up being referred to him, <laughs> and he wound up telling her the story about HBC, <laughs> which so you know there were all there are all those fun things that uh, you're not the kind of person that's going to take credit for this. So let me ask you, how did you hire people that would also maintain that ethic and and have that 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 situation in which you didn't just say we're sorry we let your dog out, but instead we're going to dedicate all of these staff. You know, because well, presumably that someone didn't call you and ask you that. That was someone underneath you. You know, there was a, um, there was a moment in time. We did a, a, a strategic planning exercise every year. And I remember that we were ending one on a Saturday, and um, we had been talking about what our managers wanted and needed to do the job. And Dan Pecorino said to me, Gary, what do you want? And I said, you know what, Dan, once before I retire, I want to work for a company where people come to work because they want to, not because they have to. And, and Dan's comment, and I will never forget it, was, oh, you mean like Disney? <laughs> and I said, well, Dan, I'm not sure all Disney employees feel as happy as they look. I don't but... know that, that Dan spent a, a summer underneath the goofy mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But now, just a minute, okay. because that afternoon I went to the Disney website just for fun. I discovered they had an institute, and there was a questionnaire and the third question, and this is at the heart of right fit talent, which uh-huh. is a Disney term. The third question was, my company hires for attitude, not aptitude. And that was like getting in, hit in the head with a baseball bat because I'm thinking, you know, everyone we hired was for aptitude. Right. They had to have a background like you had coming out of Rochester, right? And and suddenly and and then we'd spend six months training them and then they'd leave in two months. Right. And and so um I wrote to Disney. I I wrote on their little respond to us thing and on Monday I got a call and the guy said, Are you serious? You, you want to build a company where people come to work because they want to instead of because they have to? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Will you guys help us? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we're really intrigued by this. We'd like to come up and visit. So Disney sent two guys to Minnesota in February. And <laughs> and they arrived without coats. Did those guys lose a bet? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. And without boots. And they spent a week with us. And they just sat around and watched how everything worked. And then um, Friday rolled around, and they were going home, and we had a blizzard. And they had to drive to the cities to catch an airplane. And I... No coats, no boots, and, you know, 
driving on Minnesota roads when you're from Florida, you got to be kidding me. Right, and it's, and this, it's not interstate from Winona to the no. Twin Cities. No, and so I'm just, I am so frightened about the prospect. Well, they made it. And then we got a call saying, we'd like to have you bring your workforce down and we'd like to work with you for a week or so. And um, there was a price tag. And there was also a commitment for numbers. And we had a number of employees, but you can't just take a week off to go to Florida, right? right. Send a note to your subscribers. Yeah, I say, <laughs> we'll be back in a week. And um, so we partnered up with the hospital. And, and the hospital, we split our workforce. The hospital um, took its managers in two different teams, and we went to Disney. And we learned a lot, and they helped us define a plan for finding and hiring right-fit talent. So we started hiring for attitude made a lot of difference. That's great. Yeah. All of our employees are stars. That's why we keep them on. But one that I'm particularly fond of the story was um, she applied at our organization without a lot of the background that you, know, you might think we're looking for, someone who knows telecom, technology, and whatnot. She graduated with a classics degree. In doing the posting for the internship position, um, we, we spelled um, internet, we capitalized intern. And it was just this goofy little thing, you know, and she saw that and saw that we were, you know, perhaps whimsical and decided to apply. And she has made an incredible difference to our work. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and, and uh, from a simple little question, my company hires for attitude, not aptitude. And do you stop hiring for aptitude? No. But does attitude become an equation? Absolutely. And uh, I, I think that has helped a lot. I think that uh, Dan would tell you that turnover at HBC is incredibly small. <laughs> you have low churn in all aspects of business. We do. We do. You know, our churn was, was way under 1% on a customer level. You know, if, if we lost... More than one employee to a different opportunity, that would have been a large number in any given year. So I'm proud of HBC. I'm proud of what it did. I'm proud of what it's doing. And I think Dan is doing a marvelous job. He has new uh, challenges now because the old HBC ownership is gone now. Mm -hmm. They have a new owner. I think the board, of which I was a member until the end, um, tried to do a great job in finding a new owner for HBC that would not get in the way of what it does and how it does it. Good. I want to I want to turn this into a two-part interview now because we've spent more time. <laughs> this has been terrific. I would like to see there's several other topics that um, that we didn't get to that I would like to. And so well, that's um, because I talk too much. <laughs> you have more stories than I realized and I thought you had a lot. <laughs> um but uh, we are going to wrap it there. I'll tell people that there is more um, of the story, and we will aim to try. I will aim to talk Gary into telling more of it, and and this will deal a little bit more with some of your role in um, in the the broader range of rural broadband policy, um, some of the role of of HBC in helping other networks, other cities. Um, and, uh, and a few other issues. But uh, we're, we're out of time for today. So thank you very much, Gary. You're quite welcome. I've had a great time. Chris, you've been a wonderful friend for many years. And uh, it's fun to sit down and reminisce with you. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, it's a long time from, I remember, 2008. To, it was after the election. We knew Obama was going to be taking office. We knew there was going to be a stimulus plan. And I was working on emails in a chain with you and several other people trying to figure out what we would suggest that they might do in terms of stimulus. And I remember my dad looking at me and thinking, it's Christmas, take a break. And I was thinking, <laughs> this is work I want to do. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Christopher with Gary Evans, former president and CEO of Hiawatha Broadband Communications in southeastern Minnesota. For more about the company, visit hbci.com. 
You can also check out our coverage on muninetworks.org at the HBC tag. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. We want to thank Arnie Hughesby for our theme music, Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening to episode 297 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. (laughs) 